So I'll never forget how I felt that day. As I look back, it's one of my more vivid memories that I have because I felt something so deeply that day. It was my first day at the University of Michigan. And what I felt was a surprising sting of loneliness. You see, throughout high school, I was fairly connected. I was involved in in several things. And then after high school, I went to a, a small college right over the Wisconsin border called Carthage College. It's a little liberal arts school with not a large student body. And in fact, the students affectionately called it Camp Carthage because it was this isolated little community detached from everything else. They really discouraged you living off campus. So it's a tight community. And on top of that, my older brother, who I've always been very close to, went to Carthage two years before me. So I had been visiting him. I had begun to befriend his friends. And so my mom describes that there's always sadness in dropping off a kid at college, um, is what I hear. But it was a little bit different with me. Because we pulled up in the van and immediately, as soon as we arrived, there's this big group of people waiting for me already like, Carrie is here! Carrie is here! And, you know, all of this big group runs down, grabs the boxes out of the van, gets me all set up in my dorm room. We had it all arranged that I lived in the same hallway as all of them. And then, so everything's set up. We, we, I'm sure we went and got food because that's what college guys do. So we did that and... I didn't go to the cafeteria by myself, and then right away they plugged me into the campus ministry with them, so that I was on the worship team before classes even started. And I I just remained connected in this small, tight-knit community throughout my whole time there. And then I graduated in that summer. I, I went to the University of Michigan. Again, my parents dropped me off. They drove away. And nobody was there. I, I lived a few miles off of campus. And I roomed blind and I don't think my roommate was there. So not knowing what to do with myself, I, I got on my bike and I rode the few miles to the middle of campus. And at this time the sun was setting and I just wanted to see where my classes were. So there I was. In the middle of this university looking around. And all of a sudden, like this, I was overcome with loneliness. And what struck me was the fact that there were people all around me. I was surrounded by people, and yet they didn't really know me. Surrounded by so many people. I mean, there's 45,000 students at the University of Michigan. Surrounded by people. And yet I'd never felt so lonely. And I think that's a testimony to the fact that when it comes to community, it is not enough to share the same space. It's not enough to all be gathered in the same location. It's not enough to share similarity. I'm sure I had a good amount in in common with these students. We were all students. We were probably all about the same age bracket. 
But that wasn't enough. It was not enough to all share a common affiliation as part of that particular institution that we could all wear those t-shirts that we belong. None of those things were enough to give me a sense of community. I was still utterly alone. And maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you can relate to that moment of being surrounded by people and yet being lonely. I think for many of us, it's actually a regular experience in our lives. And I think for some of us, it is even an experience in this room. That we can be surrounded by people and still lonely. Because it's not enough to share the same space. To all gather in this room. It's not enough to all share some common interests. It's not enough to share a common affiliation that we are all members of this church. That we could all wear a t-shirt that says Good News Bible Church. That in itself is not enough to experience community. So the question is, if that's not enough, then what is it that we need to share in order to experience community? And that's what our passage is about this morning. This morning is the last leg in our series on true community. And the heart behind this series is acknowledging that there are beautiful expressions of community throughout our church, here and there. And yet, at the same time, there is still a hunger for more. There is still an experience of loneliness, even when we are surrounded by others. And so, a few weeks ago, we started off in Philippians chapter 2. And then we looked at the example of the church in Antioch. And then we looked at Ephesians chapter 4. And today, we're going to look at Acts chapter 4 verses 23 through 37. So I want to invite you to turn there if you're able. Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 37. And this passage chronicles the example of the early church. And you know, there's a lot that could be said about the early church. And I think often it is idealized as this perfect church. And I want you to know from up front, the early church was far from perfect because it was filled with human beings just like you and I. We're in Acts chapter 4, and we will actually see that in Acts chapter 5 if you continue reading. Not a perfect church. But I have no doubt in my mind that it was a strong community. That is one thing that comes through so clearly when we read the descriptions of the early church. And even in our passage today, it comes through so quickly. So if, if you're already there, Acts chapter 4, it comes out in verse 32. This is where it comes out almost as strongly as anything in this passage. It says, now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. The full number. So it wasn't 50% feeling connected and 50% not feeling connected. It was the full number. Every single person in that church community feeling one heart and one soul together. That kind of unity and oneness. 
And then it says they were experiencing great power and great grace from God. I mean, this was a strong, thriving community. And a little thing on top of that, if you look at verse 23, it says that they, the apostles, went back to their friends. And as we read through the passage, it becomes clear that this is probably referring to the church, the church community. It's called friends. Some of us right away, when we hear that word, we think of exclusion. But what this really communicates is this sense that the community shared this this sense of camaraderie with one another. This sense of belonging with one another. So here it is, this community with this sense of belonging where every single person is feeling one heart and one soul and they're experiencing great power and great grace from God. I mean, that is a strong and thriving community. Don't you want that? I do. So the question is, what did they share? What did they share? And before we say anything, the first thing that they shared is their faith in Jesus Christ. That's what we see in verse 32, now the full number of those who believed. You see, that's what they made them a community. That was their bedrock. Jesus had made them one. And yet there were things that they actively did to make that fact an experience. Things that they shared. And what this passage today highlights is two basic convictions. Two basic convictions of the early church. It was once explained to me that a belief is something that you hold, but a conviction is something that holds you. In other words, it grips you. It shapes your behavior. So these two convictions shaped the behavior shaped the community life of the early church. And just so you know, going into it, some of this is going to be overlap from the, from the passages that we've heard before in this series, but I'm okay with that. Uh, this is deliberately two points so we can drill in deeper to some of these topics, so we can sit on them a little bit more and let them sink in before we're done with this series. So let's jump in. The first basic conviction of the early church found in this passage is this. They shared a passion for witnessing. They shared a passion for witnessing. And that's found in the first half of our passage, verses 23 through 31. I'll begin by reading verse 23. When they, the apostles, were released... They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. So what's going on here? We're starting right out in the middle of something. How did we get here? Well, the day before, two apostles, Peter and John, had been preaching in front of the temple. A crowd had gathered around them and they were sharing about Jesus, about his life, death and resurrection and and the need to have faith in him. And when we do, we receive full forgiveness. And it says times of refreshing will come upon you. So they're sharing Jesus with this crowd. And all of a sudden, the Jewish leaders hear that they're doing it. They come and they grab the apostles and they throw them in prison. Well, the next morning, these two are woken up. They're dragged out of the prison and they're brought before Caiaphas, the high priest, and Annas, his father-in-law. The two most powerful people in the Jewish religion at the time. 
And where have we, where have we heard these two names before? These were the exact two people who not too long before this had sent Jesus to Pilate to be crucified. Caiaphas and Annas. And who were the two disciples, the only two disciples that witnessed Jesus on trial? Peter and John. So I have no doubt in my mind that as these two apostles are standing there before Caiaphas and Annas, they are having flashbacks of what happened to their master not too long ago. So Caiaphas and Annas say this, we prevent you from speaking the name of Jesus any longer. And do you know what Peter said? He basically said, well, I understand that you're saying that. But if God tells us something differently, we have to go with that. Eventually, Caiaphas and Annas released them because of the crowd. But on the way out, they gave them one last warning. In essence, mark my words. If you continue to speak the name of Jesus, you will be sorry. We have to understand that these were not empty threats. This was not a little pat on the hand. Don't you do that. I mean, these were the two who not too long before had sent Jesus to be crucified. They had that kind of power. These were the same two who in the next chapter of Acts actually do beat Peter and John. These were the same two who were, who were responsible two chapters after that for Stephen, the Christian, being stoned to death. I mean, these are not empty threats. So they're telling them, no longer speak the name of Jesus. How would you feel? What would you do? Well, these two apostles, what they did was they headed back to their friends, to the church. And they told the church everything. And how did the church respond? It says this. They lifted up their voices together. In other words, as a community, they prayed. So what did they pray? Let's read it. In verse, starting in verse 24, right in the middle of the verse. This is their prayer together as a community. Let me just say on the side, this is a community that prayed, and that was part of their oneness. That was a bonus, but there's still two points to the sermon. So, it starts out, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of, of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Real quick, notice already that the bulk, they prayed the bulk of their sermon, or the bulk of their prayer. And this is the longest prayer recorded in the book of Acts. And they have not said one request. And now finally, they tack on basically one request at the end of their prayer. This is it, verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats 
And grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. That's the request. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. In other words, this is their prayer. This is their prayer as a community. Lord, in the face of these threats, do not let us give in. Do not let us give up. Help us to continue to speak the name of Jesus, to share him with those around us. Isn't that amazing? If that was me, in, in the shoes of that church, if that was us, if, if that was the church at large, what, what would be our temptation to pray? God, in the face of these requests, grant us safety. Wouldn't we be tempted to pray that? God, in the face of these requests, undo the schemes of these people. Show us favor in their eyes. Change their hearts. God, in the face of these requests, give us wisdom about whether we should speak or not. I think all of those would be legitimate prayers. I think safety is a good thing. I think safety is a gift from God. And yet, it was not their primary concern. It was not their primary consideration. One scholar puts it like this. Maintenance of the group. Maintenance of the group. In other words, okay, we are an early church. Uh, We just started. We're in a fragile state. We just got to kind of get through this. Let's just lie low for a while so that we can survive. We just got to focus on existing now. Maintenance of the group was not the primary consideration. Above all, this was a witnessing community. And for that reason, they enjoyed much grace from the Lord. They were a witnessing community. And that's what defined them. That's what formed them as a community. It was that passion. And as another scholar said, it was that passion that unified them. It was a unifying passion. You know, I think we often believe that being on mission together flows out of our strength as a community. When the reality is that being on mission together is actually part of what makes us strong as a community. It is not the result of being a strong community. It is one of the means of making us a strong community. It is a unifying passion that brings us together. How? How does being on mission strengthen us as a community? Isn't being on mission about focusing on people out there? I believe that something powerful happens when we stand side by side together and move forward together. When we take risks together and step out of our comfort zones. We make sacrifices together and and depend on one another in new ways and, and pray for one another because we are all moving forward on a common mission. And what is our mission? It's the same as it was for the early church. To share Jesus with those around us. It is the exact same mission. 
And that is part of what strengthens us as a community, is when we do that together. I think this is something that we can see all throughout our lives. One example that I can think of is, I don't know if you've ever done one of those cheesy group building activities when you show up with like a group of people that you don't quite know, uh, one of those team building initiatives. If you think about those things, it's like, okay, you guys have two minutes to get to the other side of this and you have to balance on this wooden pole and you have to all take off one shoe and tie them together in color-coordinated fashion, right? And as you do that, you'll accomplish your mission. The majority of the time, it is a mission, a task given to the group to accomplish together. And what you find is as you work together on that task and say, okay, you do this, I'll do that. Okay, that didn't quite work, so let's try something else. And you're depending on one another and learning about one another. As you do that and work together, you are fused together as a team by the end. It's very rarely only sitting together in the same space. It is almost always working on a mission. One missiologist uh, talks about this principle. A missiologist is someone who's an expert in the, in the theology and practice of missions and coaches the church on being on mission. He says, we can see this principle, how being on mission together makes us more of a community. We can see this all over literature and movies. And of course, he points to the Lord of the Rings, the fellowship of the ring. Well, how was this fellowship formed? They went on a journey together. People of different backgrounds, unlikely people who would not otherwise get along. And yet they were given a quest, a mission. And through taking risks and making sacrifices and depending on one another, by the end, they were a fellowship. They were fused together. This is how he puts it in his words. The elf and the dwarf were inseparable friends. And the hobbits became something they never could have been if they had remained in the safety of the shire. The members of the fellowship are bound to one another. And they truly find one another in the context of an arduous but common mission. That's how they refuse together. This is a concept that missiologists call communitas. I think nowadays it's, it's like edgy to use the Latin, communitas. And what that basically means is deep level community. So someone defines communitas like this. Communitas is a community infused with a grand sense of purpose. It involves movement and it describes the experience of togetherness that only really happens. That only really happens among a group of people actually engaging in a mission outside of itself. So one pastor commenting on this principle says this, when the church focuses on mission, communitas naturally develops. But when the church tries to create community, it often goes bad. Because what happens when we try to create community is it often draws us all inward, looking at one another. And then that often leads to being ingrown. And when we're ingrown, it can become like, like a pool of water without an outlet. It becomes more stale and stagnant. 
So what this is saying, in other words, that the irony is when we seek community, we often don't get it. But when we seek to be on mission together, we often get deep community. Communitas. Use the edgy Latin phrase. Another missiologist, I'm just going to hit you with quotes because I really want to sit on this and for us to feel the cumulative effect of this principle. Another missiologist says this, those who love community destroy it, but those who love people build community. And then I think before all of this kind of uh, got popular, years before, I believe, uh, a uh, scholar put it like this, scholar that I really look up to. He says, community life is not an end in itself. A vibrant community is a community on mission. I know I've just hit you with a lot. I know maybe that dead horse was a little bit beaten. But I really want us to hear this. I really, I, I really want us to sit on this, this point a little bit. Because maybe the church at large is struggling to experience more community. Because often how we've seen church is that place where we come and gather together. And that's extremely important. That we all come and gather together in this place together. That is extremely important and that is in Scripture. Do not forsake the assembly. And yet if it stops with that, we will short-circuit the deeper level of community that we were intended to experience when we are on mission together. When we leave the walls and engage our surroundings with the best news of all and to love people with a love that God has lavishly poured out on our hearts that we just can't keep to ourselves. So maybe, maybe part of our hunger to experience more community in here is because we can do more for the community out there. And I know that many of you are. And oftentimes it looks like people doing things by themselves out there for the sake of the kingdom on mission. And so that's, that's part of my application. If you are already doing something outward, who can you invite along to come with you? What person or group can you bring with you to do what you are already doing on mission? And... If you know someone who's already doing something outward, can you uh, invite yourself along for the sake of partnering with that person? Because they will be better for it, you will be better for it, and the work of the kingdom will be better for it. Or lastly, the last question, as we just seek to sit on this, what new thing can we do together to be on mission and to be engaging our surroundings? Because I believe that as we do, That'll be part of what strengthens us as a community. Just like it did the early church. So the, their first basic conviction was this. They shared a passion for being on mission. And now we look at their second basic conviction. The second basic conviction that we see in this passage from the early church 
is that they shared their possessions with one another. They shared their possessions with one another. That was their second basic conviction. We see it here, and we also see it in Acts chapter 2. It's found in the second half of the passage this morning in verses 32 through 37. I'll describe it. What happened was, it says that the people didn't regard their property as their own. In other words, they didn't hold on to their things with a tight fist, but, but held their things with open hands. And when a need arose in the community, people would actually go out and sell a house or a piece of land and bring the proceeds to the leadership, and the leadership would distribute it to meet those needs. Only it wasn't just a one-time thing. Uh, the, the verbs in this paragraph are in the continuous sense. So this was something that was happening over and over. That's why the NIV translates it from time to time. It was again and again. A need would come up. Someone would go and sell something substantial, bring the proceeds, and the, disciples, the apostles would uh, distribute it, and the need was met. And the need would come up, and then the need was met. And then a need would come up, and then the need was met with sacrificial love, so much so that it says every single need in their community was cared for. It says there was not a needy person among them because they were willing to sacrifice for one another. You see, their focus on being on mission did not lead them to neglect one another. That's a legitimate fear, isn't it? That if we are so focused on people out there, will we forget people in here? And yet what this passage shows us, what the early church shows us, is that it doesn't have to be a zero-sum game where it's either one or the other. That we can do both. The early church did. They were on mission together, and yet they were mindful of one another's needs. Extremely so. I mean, sometimes I think it's so extreme that we read this passage and we easily write it off. Like, wow, that was awesome that they were doing that. That was amazing. Now back to real life. Don't touch my hoodie. Right? And yet, what if we actually lived this way? I know that's a scary question. Scary question for me to ask. Because sometimes when I'm writing a message, I feel like God calls me to live into it a little bit before I preach it. So I was like, do I really want to ask this question? But yes, what if... What if we actually lived this way? How would it impact us as a community? And I don't think this is uh, communism. Mother Russia didn't tell me to share this with you. What we see in this passage is that it was voluntary. It was not enforced. It was not obligated upon everybody. People just did this out of their hearts. They saw a need and it just came out of their hearts. In fact, it was probably, probably people who looked at their lives and said, I have more than enough so I can give them more and live on the enough. It was most likely the people giving the extra. It's what one scholar described as the John the Baptist principle. In Luke 3.11, John the Baptist said this. This is how we're supposed to live. He says, 
Luke 3.11, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. So this is probably people doing just that, seeing if they had more, and then giving the extra. And right away, some of us are relieved, like, whew, okay, I don't have extra. In fact, I'm in debt. But more than any other time and location in the history of the entire world, we live in a culture of extra. We live in a culture built on the concept of extra. I mean, John the Baptist says two tunics, two coats. Is that all? You should see my closet. You want thingamabobs? I got 20. We have extra. So what if we actually lived this way? I think it's possible. Lisa and I went to a, we got, we went to a church in Detroit. We got married there, but before I came along and tagged along with her, uh, she went there by herself and she describes the time where she was sitting there in church and they were just sharing with one another. And I think one lady got up and it was a time of prayer request. So she said something like, I got a praise. I got a new job. But then she said something like, I, but with that, I also have a request because I don't have a way to get to the job. Because public transportation in Detroit is different than Chicago. And so then right away, someone else stands up and says, I have a car for you. Boom. That's the church. They just took care of the need. Like, you hear that, and it's like, that, that sounds like the New Testament. That stuff still happens. It's possible. Or, or even um, Pastor Ralph, I can say this without embarrassing him, fairly recently there was an urgent need within our community for a vehicle. Pastor Ralph found out and gave that person his van. Just like that. Now it was his extra vehicle, and it was older, but he could have got money out of that. And yet he just gave that person his van. Boom, you can have it. That's what I'm talking about. He didn't even advertise it because that's not what it's about. Or even a, a few weeks ago, I was doing a movie on the lawn, and there's a very real need for setup. That's a need. And um, there was somebody who got free tickets to a conference that they were really looking forward to going to. And yet they contacted me about the movie and said, you know, I'm there. I'm there with you. I'm, I'm willing to help. Well, later I found out about this conference and I encouraged, I encouraged him to go and he did. But what I was so touched by, what so encouraged me is that he was willing to sacrifice time and energy and something very precious to him to meet that need. It's a willingness to sacrifice. Isn't that what love looks like? Isn't that what Jesus teaches us? For God so loved the world that he gave. See, the cross shows us what love is, and love looks like sacrifice. Love looks like Jesus sacrificing everything. Letting go of all that he had in heaven to come down to earth and become a human, fully God and fully human to live a life of suffering and hunger and, and all that, to lay down his entire life at the cross, to meet our deepest need, 
Our need for forgiveness. Our need to be brought into a relationship with God by faith. That's what love looks like. I had some scriptures for you at this point, but you can ask me about them later. I think we're just going to drive this to the end here. What this looks like is a willingness to surrender. A willingness to surrender everything. There was a church in Buenos Aires, and the pastors were preaching on some of these themes, and all of a sudden, the people started bringing them titles to their homes and titles to their cars. And they're like, whoa, what do we do with this? They did not want to be rash with with the precious gifts that they received from these people. So they prayed on it. They prayed on it for six months, seeking, God, what do we do with these things? And after six months, they came back to the people and they said this. They said to the people, the Lord showed us that he doesn't want your empty houses. He wants a house with, with you inside taking care of it. He wants everything ready for him. In other words, it's a reference to Matthew chapter 25 where Jesus says, when you receive a visitor, you receive me. So he wants you to steward your house and get ready to receive visitors. And then they said he also wants your car with you as the driver. Just remember, though, that everything still belongs to God. So that's what I want to call us to now. To be able to offer up all of our things to the Lord. The Bible says this is our act of worship to surrender our whole lives to God. So that means laying it all down. Our car, if we have one. Our place that we live. Our money. Our stuff. And our food. Just saying, God, this is my this is my life. You're worthy of it all. You are worthy of it all. And how do we get the strength to do that? One of my favorite verses in Scripture, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, calls us to surrender our entire lives. But it starts out like this. It says, in view of God's mercies. In other words, in light of all that he's done for us, in light of all that we have, there it is, because we have Jesus. Lay it all down. So in other words, because I have this relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, because I have the hope that comes from that and the peace that comes from that and the joy that comes from that and the love that comes from that and that, that comfort that only he can give, that stability, that Holy Spirit inside of me, that purpose in my life, because I have all those things, I can feel like the richest person in the world. And that's what frees me to give this kind of stuff away. I, I have, I have Jesus. I, I am the richest man in the world. You can have all this little stuff. Because of Jesus, there can be a fullness in our soul because our hearts were made for him. And he is the one that fills us so that we don't have to cling to money and stuff in order to try to fill our souls. It's already filled so we're free. We're free to lay it all down and give it away. So, I want to encourage us to come before the Lord and ask, laying it all before him, Lord, how would you have me use this for you? Use my belongings to love other people in real ways.
In fact, what tangible thing would you have me do to jumpstart living this out? Or what is something valuable to me that I can honestly live without and just lay it before him? So you know what? To share space and similarities and affiliation is not enough. We can still be surrounded by people and yet lonely. So to experience more community in our journey together for greater community, let's not forget these two basic convictions of the early church. To share a passion for witnessing and to share our possessions with one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you. And Lord, I thank you for all that you've given us in Jesus. That is a free gift, a free gift that we don't have to earn, that we don't have to try to deserve, but a gift freely given to us that we receive by faith all that we have and the abundance of that. that there's a fullness in our souls. Help us to know that more deep within, that we might be free, free to surrender all out of worship to you because you're worthy. And Lord, I pray, God, that you would show us more and more how to be on mission together. Lord, that you would lead us and help us because we need you. In Jesus' name, amen.